From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded. Listening to Delta Dispatches, we're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. How are you, Jacques? I'm doing well, Simone. You know, it's officially the first day of summer, I guess, as of two days ago. And yeah, I know. It's been a little wild up here. You know, we've had like 90 degree weather for a while, and then it kind of dropped down to 50, and then it's going to get back up to 90. So trying to get accustomed to these, you know, 40, 50 degree temperature swings, but otherwise doing well. And how are you doing? I know you all have been getting a lot of rain down there. And we had Claudette come on shore. Yeah, nothing, <laughs> nothing has changed. It's hot and it's wet. <laughs> um, oh, did you see, I've got sent um, a, a TikTok video several times about Claudette. And so now I will always think about Claudette as, um, as a funny name. So that's, that's one of the, the fun things about social media and things like that, that catch fire. There's also obviously a lot of negative stuff, but um, every now and then social media redeems itself with something super funny. So Simone, does this mean you're actually going to set up a TikTok no. account and no. we're going to no. see you? No, 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 not happening. Bear, Jockey Bear still has to send me TikToks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I will, as long as you can view the ones that I send you that are really good. And I promise to only keep it to the best. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, well, you know, a lot going on this week, as always. Um, you know, this is the first ever Louisiana Win Week. And I know we're going to talk about that on the show next week, kind of as a look back with some of the people that have been involved. But anything you want to say? Um, since that is happening right now. Yeah, we um, we had a uh, I had an opportunity to participate in, in a couple of the panels and that was very good discussion. It's also very interesting to see the level of leadership on this. I mean, we're talking about federal agencies and um, and leaders from national um, agencies. And so it, it just uh, makes you understand how important something like uh, wind energy could be here in Louisiana. And certainly it's our own wind week, but it for all intents and purposes, it sounds like um, because Louisiana has done things like this before, we're kind of naturally positioned to figure it out. So kudos to Harry Vorhoff, who's going to be on our um, on our show soon, and and folks like Joe Ogeron here in Louisiana that have um, continued to push the issue. And I think um, there's a lot to be said and learned this week. And so I'm, I'm excited to talk to those guys about um, about what's next for Louisiana in that respect. Cool. Well, I definitely am excited to kind of hear from them on how it went and, you know, hear from folks like yourself and others that are attending some of the programming on that. So definitely exciting. Kind of relatedly, there was some news, speaking of federal news that came out um, last week about a bill that was introduced in the Senate by Senators Cassidy and White House called the RISE Act. And that has implications on funding for Louisiana's coast. So can you give our listeners a little bit of a quick overview of what the RISE Act is and what it'll do for funding in Louisiana? Sure. Um, that is, again, as you mentioned, it's a, um, a federal bill that um, 
was introduced by Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy and also um, Sheldon Whitehouse, who came from Rhode Island, another senator. And we had Sheldon Whitehouse down here in Louisiana. We spent a great couple of days with him. Um, One of our our most beloved colleagues, Eric Johnson, really wowed him um, with some some bird discussions when we went out to Davis Pond. Uh, But those two senators introduced some legislation that um, would increase funding for coastal restoration and hurricane protection. And you think like, wow, Rhode Island, right? But they they have a strong interest in wind and a few other things that are happening off their shore as well. So um, the RISE Act is, is also the reinvesting in shoreline economies and ecosystems because along with, um, along with the energy obviously comes um, with jobs and infrastructure. And so um, that's something that the CPRA has been a champion of is increasing our shares there. And so that was just introduced into um, into Congress last week. So uh, we'll follow its developments. Um, but, you know, looks like uh, we have another champion uh, to help us with some resilience in Sheldon Whitehouse. That's that's great. And we'll definitely have to keep people updated as that legislation moves forward. And I would imagine, you know, just being the senator from a coastal state, you know, while it may not be as dramatic as, you know, crisis as we have in Louisiana, you know, they're still thinking about sea level rise and kind of some of the threats to their coastal communities as well. So really great to see kind of, um, you know, our state partner with others that are facing similar challenges and actually identify some solutions for moving it forward. So I'm so excited about today's uh, you know, guests and today's topic. There was a recent Times Picayune New Orleans Advocate article by Tristan Barrick that I learned a ton about, you know, Bayou Lafouche and the history. Um, you were quoted in it, Simone, always giving wonderful context um, as, as usual. Um, so I know this is your neck of the woods and your people. So I'm really excited to have us focus on this topic. But tell us about what we're going to talk about today and who our guests are. Yeah, it was certainly. Um, we've had we talked about Bayou Lafouche on the show before, and we've had uh, Ryan Perk on before, and so um, I'm glad to see um, somebody like Tristan highlight the Bayou, but also go back into its its rich history. So I want to welcome to the show Ryan Perk. Ryan is the executive director of Friends of Bayou Lafouche, which is a Louisiana-based nonprofit focused on the revitalization of Bayou Lafouche. They focus on education and outreach, as well as projects to create and beautify recreational opportunities along the bayou. So welcome back to the show, Ryan Perk. Thanks for having me, Simone. Um, so we we usually start with, you know, re- remind folks about the background, but we feel like um, these past couple of months, we always just have to ask folks, how are you doing? <laughs> how have you been during these crazy times? Am I, am I remembering that you're like a newlywed in quarantine? Remind me. Yeah, um, I think I'm. I think I'm about a year and a half, or a little bit over a year and a half. Hopefully, my my wife doesn't listen to this down the road because I should probably know that answer. But uh, we'll, we'll make we'll make two years in October. I know that for sure. Uh, so yes, I mean we we survived a a pandemic. I did not have to sleep outside. Um, not once, huh? Not not a single time. So you know it's it's been good. Like. Like any other nonprofit business or government a- governmental agency, you know, we've, we've had our hurdles. Uh, we, we've shifted some and did what we needed to do. And, and fortunately, um, a lot of our long-term projects 
uh, were not derailed and, and they've continued. So we've we've been fortunate, but we've we've had to make adjustments just like everybody else. So, Ryan, just just for some background, um, my husband and I got married in May and Katrina came in August. So um, it says a lot to test your marriage very, yes. very early. Um, if you like if you can make it through some of those things, you can make it through most things. So Mr. Malaz and I are still very happily married. So <laughs> I think that bodes well for most people. Um, but let's remind folks a little bit about your background. You are a Bayou guy for for yes. all intents and purposes. Uh, yes. Born and raised in, in Thibodeau, spent a little time uh, in the Northeast just after college and uh, was drawn back pretty quickly. So there's, you know, the old saying there's no place like home. I went to, uh, went to Nichols, also known as, uh, I need to get this right because I don't want to get in trouble with Harvard, but I, I believe the proper term is our Harvard on the Bayou. Uh, oh, oh so, skirting that trademark in there, huh? <laughs> correct, correct. I, I don't need to get a cease and desist letter from from Harvard, but went to the our Harvard Bayou and uh, spend spend most of my weekends hunting and fishing in the the lower parts of the Fouche and Terrebonne Parish. I love that, Ryan. And and I know, you know, it must be so rewarding to continue to be connected to your community and where you grew up, but also doing the good work of helping, you know, the people of that region and, and one of its most significant waterways, which we're going to talk about today. So tell us a little bit about Friends of Bayou Lafouche and how it came about. Sure. So I, I'll make this I'll make this kind of a quick story. But, you know, back in uh, about 10 years ago, Hurricane Gustav came through and, and wreaked havoc on our area. And, and one of the things that that tremendously impacted was was Bayou Fouche. And in a nutshell, the, the Bayou essentially went septic. And and for several weeks, uh, the, the water that was being pulled from Bayou Fouche treated and distributed to the homeowners of West Ascension, Assumption, Lafouche, and Terrebonne Parishes had a very distinct smell to it because of the water in, in Bayou Lafouche. So we're, we're looking at 300,000 people that rely on the bayou for their source of, of water for their home and their business. And so there's no better way to get people's attention than through a, a negative event, if you will. So that was a catalyst for the Bailafouche Freshwater District to kind of reorganize, put together some plans moving forward and, and what they could do to, to not allow this to happen again, uh, to have a more consistent and reliable water supply and how we get that, that fresh water and that sediment down to the lower parts of Lafouche and Terrible Parish. So that, that summit was held uh, back in, I believe, 2011, and a couple of the things that that came out of this this summit that lasted several days. Uh, one of them was being more outreach for Bailafouche in terms of what what is the freshwater district doing? What is the Bailafouche freshwater district doing? What are the the levy districts doing? What are the parishes doing? Because there's so many governmental agencies along this 106 mile stretch of the bayou there was not one consolidated source for information pertaining to the bayou and the work that's taking place um so outreach was one of the big things that that came out of that along with uh recreational opportunities boosting the the economic possibilities of the bayou and promoting recreation in the bayou was one of the other things and 
And so those two pieces of information were taken between outreach and recreation. And that led to the formation of Friends of Bottled Hooch, which we are a nonprofit organization. The conversations kind of started 2015. Um, formalization started taking place in 16, 2017. Friends of Bottled Hooch uh, received their, their nonprofit status. And that's when we started executing governmental CEAs, putting projects together, events, formalizing our outreach efforts. Uh, and, and here we are today uh, in, in a position where we have brick and mortar projects being built. We have a following base of, of people who want to stay in touch of, of what's taking place with the Bayou. And so the, the fund continues. It's, it's taken a little while to get to this point, uh, especially with the brick and mortar projects, because it's a lot of these programs are federal and, and state funded programs that Obviously, these things don't take place overnight. Uh, you know, extensive applications and, and permitting and, and bidding and design and all that good stuff. So, um, you know, all the work that we've been doing behind the scenes for the last two or three years is finally coming to fruition. So, uh, we're, we're at a point now to where we've we've got project two, at least two projects per year rolling out for the next several years. Well, we certainly want to talk about those um, in, in just a little bit. But, you know, that was one of the great things about the recent article in the Times speaking you, New Orleans Advocate by um, Tristan Bark is, is, you know, he basically, when I talked to Tristan, he told me it had to be in two parts and <laughs> had to be almost two feature stories because of this, you know, this past, this, this storied past that the Bayou has. But Ryan, you just talked about like it from Gustav on and, and, and that's not insignificant. So that was one of the things I loved about the article um, by Tristan and, and we're gonna, uh, grateful that we get a chance to talk to him in just a little bit. But, but Ryan, really all of this started because we disconnected the river from the bayou and that's led to all of these problems. You talked about it from a drinking water standpoint and I think that bears repeating is that 300,000 people get their fresh water from this, their drinking water from this bayou. But really, this, this also was a huge, you know, um, sustainer of land, right? And so this, this led to a lot of land loss. So how, how do you think the community kind well, I guess, let's, let's talk about that. Um, first, let's talk about the history first, Ryan. Um, basically, the bayou was dammed, it was cut off, Take it from there. Give us the drunk history, Ryan, of yeah, <laughs> well, Look, If we do this after five o'clock, we can have a legitimate <laughs> drunk history. Jacques um, and I keep threatening that we're going to do our show that way. <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. Right, right. Uh, so in in around two, th- uh, I'm sorry, 1902, 1903, somewhere around that time period, uh, the, the bayou was levied off from the Mississippi River. Um, and, and let me first go on the record and say that that was done to prevent the, the spring flood that, that took place. You know, when, when we receive these, these spring floods, river waters come up, and very few of us even recognize that that takes place. If the bayou was not dammed off from the Mississippi River, uh, we would see enormous amount of flooding along by the food. So, there's there's no debate to say that it was it was not needed. Um, you know, it, it, it needed to be done in order pr- to prevent 
those those spring floods of areas from Ascension, Assumption, and and even Lafouche Parish. While Lafouche is not on the river, if Bar Lafouche was completely open to the river, we would flood. When when the river swells, that that water would come down Bar Lafouche and overflow its banks. And and in short, that's one of the reasons why we have such great agriculture here. It's because over over many many years. The river swelled, came down by Lafouche, and over over flooded its banks, and uh, deposited sediment into what's what's now many canyons. Uh, however, the the impacts of levying the river and closing off by Lafouche uh, were absolutely detrimental to our coastal wetlands. Uh, you know, we we see that. Drastically, day in and day out, of you know the salt water moving in, and us not being able to push enough fresh water down to keep that salt water wedge out. So, while levying off the the river was necessary to prevent the, the spring flooding, it has created massive problems in terms of coastal erosion. So, you know, we we have a period between 1902 1903 where the the body was closed off to the river. And over time, it filled in with sediment just from from drainage uh, and whatever it may be. In in the 1950s, uh, the Balafouche Freshwater District was formed in order to essentially put water into the bayou. So they were formed. They built a pump station on the levee in Donisonville that pumps water from the river into the bayou. So from from about 1900 to 1950, there was there was no water being introduced from the river into Balafouche. So we get to the 50s, freshwater district is formed through the state. Uh, pumping takes place from the river into the bayou, and so now we have some water coming down the bayou. It's certainly not enough of of water. There was several obstructions in place with the Union Pacific Railroad bridge at the time that that bottlenecked. The water that was flowing, you had tons of sediment buildup, um, which which created demand for the dredging of the bayou, and then you you had a lot of bridges put in since the bayou was no longer navigable since it had been dammed up. So we we look at 1900 to nineteen fifty, nothing is really taking place in the bayou. Nineteen fifties, freshwater districts formed, we're pumping some water, and then we fast forward to uh, Gustav was about guys. Uh, 2009, is that right? It was what? Uh, uh, Katrina, Rita, Ike, and Gustav, two years later, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so we look around that period, the bayou goes septic for Hurricane Gustav, and we say, okay, no, we need to do more now. And that's when the, the freshwater district dove back into the Mississippi reintroduction of the Bayou which is a series of projects to introduce more water to buy, to buy Lafouche, not only for a drinking water standpoint, but for a coast erosion prevention uh, approach. And it's, you know, you, we see a lot of these diversion projects that, that are being built along the river. And the disadvantage that we're at in, in Lafouche and Terrebonne parishes is that we are not connected to the river. We can't just build a system of, of gates that can be open. So our best connection to the river is Bayou Lafouche. 
So what, what's being done through this series of projects, the Mississippi Reintroduction of the Bottle of Fouche, is to, like the name says, introduce more fresh water into Bottle of Fouche to serve as a, a diversion canal or bayou to get that water to the lower parts of Lafourche and Terre Haute Parish. So, you know, you kind of look, you look at the history of, of Bayou Lafourche, and it's, it's almost in 50, 60 year increments where, you know, prior to 1900, it was open to the river. You know, we, we received, received all the water that we can get, tons of commerce taking place, uh, 50, 50, 60 year period, 1900 to the 1950s, um, nothing was taking place, 50s to Hurricane Gustav, Yet some pumping, but not enough. And now we're in the next stage of, you no, know, we're re- revitalizing Balafouche to put even more water and remove restrictions. So fortunately, the freshwater district has been extremely aggressive in terms of completing a lot of the Mississippi Reintroduction of Balafouche project. Uh, you know, they've, they've completed dredging from Donisonville to Napoleonville. They've rem- the, the old Union Pacific Railroad Bridge that crossed Bailafouche. It was, it was basically a dam in Bailafouche with some culverts passing underneath it. That was replaced. That's now a fixed span bridge so water can flow freely. Uh, we have water control structures in Lockport and Assumption Parishes for these, these low water level events where we, we need to close these gates and create reservoirs. Those are there. Uh, while while they remain open for a majority of the year, they they are there in case of emergency situations. Um, and and the next two big projects that are being worked on right now is a new pump station uh, that has the ability to uh, majorly increase the amount of water being introduced into Balafouche as well as additional dredging. You know, Ryan, that's such a fascinating history and really appreciate you walking us through, you know, that whole time span and seeing how dramatically things have changed from time to time. And, you know, in hearing you discuss it, it, in my mind, it it really brings along a lot of the parallels to, you know, places on the river from New Orleans south, you know, through Plaquemines Parish and the need to build levees right on the river to protect some of those communities and that area from flooding from the river but then the effect that had over time and cutting off sediment and fresh water to the wetlands, which then, you know, as a result, resulted in a lot of the land loss we're seeing today. Um, you know, one of the things Simone and I talk about kind of the tale of two basins comparing Terrebonne and Atchafalaya. And one of the things that's always highlighted through that is the need for that sediment and fresh water and nutrients to come through the Mississippi River to Terrebonne to help sustain some of those wetlands out there as well. I'm curious, you know, in terms of, you know, people's connection to Bayou Lafouche, you know, and, and and sometimes we think like, okay, what we're experiencing today with our wetlands or with our waterways is how it's always been, right? When And we don't really always know the history of that area and how it's changed over time um, and, and the dramatic effects that the, that has had. So I know your organization has been doing a lot of work to make the Bayou more accessible, to make people more connected to the Bayou, to help people understand the, the bayou is a resource that really exists for that whole region. So can you tell us a little bit about the connection between the community and Bayou Lafouche? And, and do you see that changing as well over time? Yes. So we, we have seen a, a major perception change in Bayou Lafouche. And, and look, while, 
while I am proud of our accomplishments as an organization to get brick and mortar projects built along the bayou and, and you know, these, these events that we have in the bayou, um, what's really most exciting is to see that perception change of people no longer viewing this as just a drainage ditch. Because at one time, that, let's, let's be honest, that's, that's what it was for a period. Um, people are now recognizing it as a viable waterway, not only aesthetically, but recreationally. Uh, you know, in, in 2015, when, when, when we kind of first started and, and the freshwater district started getting aggressive about the, the bayou being open to recreational traffic, they used to see three to four permit requests a year. And, and so any... Anytime a, a structure is built along the bayou, they require a permit. Now, I will say that it's probably the easiest governmental permit process that I've encountered to date. It's free. They approve them very quickly. And at the end of the day, it's just to make sure that people are not building structures out into the middle of the bayou. So as long as you're, you're, you're staying above the permit limit line, that they have established, which is the the future dredge section channel, um, they they're going to approve your your permit, and again, it's free. And so they they will actually go out to your house and say, "Here's the line we've marked it for you. As long as you don't build past this, you're in good shape." But um, I digress a little bit. But in, in you know, in terms of those permits, we used to see three or four of them a year. We're now seeing three or four of them a month, where not only businesses but homeowners instead of just backing up their home to what used to be a drainage ditch they're building docks they're building gazebos they're they're installing floating docks they're they're parking their boat behind their house so we have seen a huge perception change of people looking at biofouche in in a different way you know, Ryan, it's funny. We had a friend that was uh, moving to Thibodeau from New Orleans, and he was looking at a house along the bayou, and and he was talking about the busy road and in front of it, and he was like, "But you know, my front door really should be my back door because it has this nice patio, and you look at the bayou." And I thought that was such an interesting perspective, right? He kind of viewed the front of his house that faced the um that faced the road kind of like at the back of his house because <laughs> right. he wanted to focus on the bayou and so I thought that was a really interesting perspective there yeah so, and look previously people just again they looked at it as a drainage ditch and they it was kind of their backyard really didn't pay much attention to it now when we're we're seeing either renovations or new homes being built they're they're building their home around this this water feature in their backyard. So the, the design of, of these homes are, are even changing in terms of they want to use the body. Yeah. In the Netherlands, they call that living with water, right? They, they mean it different ways, but that's, that's kind of why a lot of people wanted to live on the bayou in the first place. So it's nice to see that, that coming yeah, and, back. And so the, you know, the, the projects that, that the freshwater district continues to do, only increases the viability of, of the body. You know, the, the new pumping station and future dredge projects is certainly going to help with the, the sediment collection and the, um, the, the, the water quality is definitely going to help there. And, and so, you know, the, the pump station that exists there, 
depending on pumping or siphoning, they're doing about 400 to 450 cubic feet per second. And that runs just about 24-7. You know, the, the only time that they pull back on, on pumping or siphoning is when we have large rainfalls, and they need to account for that. But the, the new pump station will have the ability to do over 1,000 cubic feet per second. Now, when the new pump station's built, they won't be able to turn it on full blast right away you know we'll need we'll need additional dredging to take place which is going to be coming right behind the pump station um, and so it'll also give the freshwater district better ability to to manage the flows of the bayou you know i was on the phone with someone the other day and explaining to them look the, you know the bayou is 106 miles long so if you make a change at the pump station in Donsville, whether it's increasing the pumps or slowing the pumps, it takes several days for those impacts to reach the lower parts of the bayou. So if, if the water is coming up in Raceland, reducing the pumps in Donisonville is not going to have major changes in, in the Raceland area on, you know, for 24 to 48 hours. So it's, it's certainly a, a, a science to what those guys do in looking at, at river levels, forecasting the river levels, the the weather forecast, what direction the wind is blowing in, what are the what are the tides doing, in anticipating how they need to operate those pumps to get the water where it needs to be. So, you know, we we often get the comment from uh, let's just say Facebook engineers. Of saying, well, the the bayou was the bayou was open to the river. Let's just open it back up. Well, great from a coast erosion standpoint, but chances are you're going to flood every spring. So we we need that levee. That so the next comment is, okay, why not a why not a gate system of scenarios where we can open and close them? Um, you know, when if we had a gate system, one the the improvements in the Donaldsonville area would be much more intrusive in terms of rerouting roads, acquiring a lot more property. Uh, it would be it would be more expensive and more harmful to the, the Donaldsonville, the city of Donaldsonville. The other problem with that is it would still have to be closed when the water is high. When the water is low in the river, we would still have to pump because the elevations would not be sending enough river water into by Lafourche. So at the end of the day, the pump station is the most feasible option for introducing that water into by Lafourche. Yeah, you made a couple of great points about, um, you know, managing um, and, and having uh, when we talk about the much larger sediment diversions and even the freshwater diversions like like Davis Pond, what what you're gaining is control there. And so you have the ability to forecast whether it be a really dry spell and you need to put more water in. Um, and, and so that that is really what we're trying to do is is manage. Um, you know, we, we can't just blow holes open in levees. Um, with your Facebook engineers. We love that. Um, but, but that we are paying for this control and we know so much more now and, and we can have um, strong operational plans that the public can definitely understand. And so you make a couple of good points about being able to kind of control as much as you can and to be able to predict how you can help 
certain areas. You've, you, um, I'm sorry that Ben couldn't be on today, but you've certainly done a great job talking about the work of the Bayou Lafouche Freshwater District. But really, that work goes hand in hand. You're such a complementary organization at Friends of Bayou Lafouche to the Freshwater District. So let, let's shift our focus to that a little bit. Let's talk about some of the things that y'all are doing um, to, to enhance recreation and enhance these opportunities along the bayou. I mean, you have, you have Bayou Side Park by Nichols. You're having a boat parade. You and I just talked about Leeville the other day. So let's talk about some of the exciting things that you're working on at Friends of Bayou Lafouche. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a spinning plates type situation with everything going on and, and keeping them going. Uh, but yeah, we've got, we've got a project on the Nichols Bachelor that we've been uh, working on for quite some time now. That park is under construction. We're hoping to have it open very soon. We just need Mother Nature to cooperate with our contractor and, and give him some, some dry weather days. But we're going to have a, a off-street parking lot. Uh, and this is all on the, the Nichols Bachelor property that we were able to raise grant dollars and donations for. And it's, it's, it's going to be an off-street parking lot, a large pavilion, a boardwalk, floating dock, uh, something that we kind of custom designed with, with the engineers was a boat slide. So for, for people in paddle power boats, the kayaks, canoes, paddle boards, P-Rolls, it's somewhat of a, a ramp for them to be able to slide their boat in and out of the water instead of having to carry them up and down stairs. Um, and we will also connect to the existing walking trail that's on the, the Nichols Bachelor property. Uh, we've got a, another project in Napoleonville across from Assumption High School that is currently in design, hoping to go out for construction bids late this year, early next year on that one. We have a new motorized boat launch uh, coming very soon that we announced uh, a couple months back. It's a property on Highway 308 just above the St. Charles Bypass Bridge that a very generous landowner um, provided a long-term lease for, and we will be able to build a, a motorized boat launch and bayou side park on this property. So, um, you know, with, with the weir being recently removed, we, we've seen a huge uptick in recreational uh, utilization of the bayou. So we're trying to get these parks out as quickly as possible for the people to be able to use. And, you know, we've, we've got one in Raceland that we're hoping to break ground on this year in front of the Louisiana Cajun Bayou Visitor Center. So we've, we've got a lot going on, just think, trying to stay on top of, of design and, and permitting and construction bidding and, and all that good stuff. And then along with that, we're, you know, with, with COVID restrictions being uh, loosened up tremendously, we're looking to start bringing back some of our, our normal events that, that we have in the Bayou. Uh, you know, the, the weir removal in Thibodeau was a huge milestone in the Mississippi reintroduction by Lafourche uh, series of projects. Um, the, the weir was, was put in, in in the 60s to create a reservoir for the city of Thibodeau water intake facility, along with some uh, sugar mills above Thibodeau. That weir is, is no longer needed because of the work and, and projects that the Bottlefish Freshwater District has completed. So it was removed and, and opened back up to the public last month. And so now the, the bayou is unrestricted to 
recreational activity. So we've seen a huge influx with with the weir being removed. So we've got a we've got a boat parade, a weir what we're calling the weir removal boat parade, which is going to be open to the public, uh, free to the public. We're going to have several bands set up along the route for them to enjoy. Uh, really, what we want to do is is give people the opportunity to use the bayou and, and showcase uh, an open by Lafouche. So we're looking to set a date on that soon because we're going to be using the, the new Nichols project as, as one of the sites for the boat parade. Uh, we need to get a little bit closer in construction completion before we set a date, but hopefully that takes place in the next couple of months. And um, we've unfortunately missed out on two of our St. Patrick's Day on the Bayou events uh, from you know 2020 and uh, 2021, but we're looking forward to bringing it back in 2022. Well, Ryan, huge kudos to you and everyone at Friends of Bayou Lafouche for the amazing work. You all have a ton going on. So certainly there's no shortage of, of good activities coming up in the future. I want to ask, I mean, we've talked a lot about the history of Bayou Lafouche and kind of how we got here, as well as the important work that you and, and the folks at the Freshwater District are doing to, you know, create a, a better future for Bayou Lafouche. So let's look ahead, right? 50 years in the future. Um, what would be your vision for Bayou Lafouche? What do you want that future to look like? I think we're on the right path, and and to be honest with you, it's it's hard to it's hard to describe, you know what what my vision is and, and the goal of our board. But we see a a waterway with that that's contributing fresh water and sediment to the lower parts of Lafourche and Terrebonne Parish. That's always a priority. That we want to help with that coastal erosion because if if we don't have if we don't have high, safe, dry land, then everything else is is a mute point. So that that's top priority in in preserving the land that that we still have in order to create these these economic and recreational opportunities along the body. So with with the introduction of more water, we are now protecting ourselves. That's priority one. The the other things that come behind it is businesses capitalizing of, of bachelor property, of, of homeowners taking advantage of, of their bayou side property. The fact that we're, we're seeing these boats and these docks and, and people fishing and, and people paddling. Uh, I, I believe we're on the right track. It's to keep that momentum going to where. You know, I don't want to name I don't want to name any other other cities or places, but we go we go to so many areas that um, they capitalize on on waterfront real estate. Uh, they have places for boaters and paddlers to stop and, and things to do. And and that's my ultimate vision for for Bailafouche, whether uh, someone's in a, a motorized boat or a paddle powered boat that not only do they have. Um, places to put in and, and take out, but they have things to do along the route. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, Jacques talks about his new home and he's like, oh, I'm going kayaking and or I'm doing this in, in the river. I'm like, oh, you do those things in your river. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I mean, that's ideally I and Ryan, I don't know if I've ever 
if this has ever been found to be true or not, that Nichols once had a water ski team. Is that true? So I, I don't know if they had a formal water ski team. Um, you know, but I, people I talk, used to water ski in the bayou, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. I've, I've talked to a lot of people um, that said they learned to water ski in Bay Lafourche. I've heard rumors about ski jumps. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, and look, yeah. I, I've asked our social media followers. I've, I've asked on KTIB radio and, and Nichols archives to try to find pictures of this old ski jump. Um, but, but I've been unsuccessful in that. But yeah, we've, we've heard tons of stories of, of people skiing and, and learning to ski. And, um, you know, we're, we're seeing that begin to come back, you know, a couple of weeks ago, or I believe last week, we kind of challenged our, our social media followers to, to share pictures of them out on the bayou recently. And, and the, the pictures and videos that we got back was a lot more than, than what I even thought, you know, when we, when we pass, when we pass the, the launches and, and public docks along the bayou, uh, especially on the weekends, we see, we see trucks and trailers there. But um, when, when people start actually submitting those pictures of, of families out on, out on the water in their in their boat or two or three people kayaking together. At the end of the day, this is what it's all about. You know, we we enjoy having our events to to give people the opportunity, but it says a lot when people are taking it upon themselves to go out onto the bayou in their own time. So that's one of the things that we're working on hard in, in planning stages now is how do we entice these businesses? Um, to invest in in their bachelor property in order to give Bayou users a place to go. Yeah, well, you mentioned it y'all, uh, about social media. So, so why don't you tell people where they can find more information, like your social media handles, the website? Tell everybody where they can. Sure. Go so our our website our website is bayoulafouche dot org. That's easy. Uh, yeah, that, that's pretty easy <laughs> to remember. And both Instagram and Facebook are friends of Isla Fouche. Awesome. So awesome. Well, we'd love talking to you again today. It was great to have you back on. You always have such a wealth of information about the Bayou. And um, it was long overdue. It was my turn to have somebody from from our neck of the woods. And I'm very proud of the work that y'all do to to enhance the Bayou. And, and especially proud of the partnerships that that you've also had, not just with the Freshwater District, but with folks like Bitnap and and um, Nichols and, and lots of other folks. So I want to echo Jacques Scoot kudos to you on that. Um, now I am also in charge of the fun question. I don't remember, know if you remember this from the last time you were on. How can I forget it? (laughs) I'm telling you, it's always so interesting. Everybody's like, can you please tell me what it is? Um, we, we just had a recent request for, please tell me what the fun question is. It's like, uh, that makes it less fun. fun. That's no fun. Bring on the surprise. Well, I did ask Jacques if I could handle this one because, um, so you're a Nichols guy, you grew up there, but I have to ask, what is your favorite Thibodeau watering hole? Are you a Roxas? Are you a Renee's? What, what, you know, are you a, um, a, uh, last call kind of guy, Ryan? Um, <laughs> yeah, that, so that's a tough one. And, and, and to be quite honest, our Tolos, they got new places, right? Yeah. It's changed over the years. You know, when when I was when I was at Nichols, it was certainly the 
the the Roxes, Renee's, Goose, uh, the occasional last call visit um, at in, at that time. Uh, now I would I would like to think that uh, I may be a little bit more mature. My wife may disagree with that, <laughs> um, but yeah, it tends to now be more places where we can. We can sit down, have have a couple drinks and and some food along the way. So I I'd, I'd probably put that up as you know the the Peppers, the Freemans, the Cuvée, Sinclair type type places. Yeah, yeah, good call on that. Oh man, I used to be a Piazza girl. All day. I used to love, yep. but we also used to go to to Roxas and put twenty dollars in the jukebox so we could have the songs all night. But we yep. loved watching people go put their money in the jukebox, thinking that spent, their song was going to play. I, I spent my fair share of time with with uh, Rocco and in Roxas. <laughs> uh, we're on a first name basis, and, and he still remembers me so. Uh, yeah, I've probably paid a few light bills over there. <laughs> well, good answer. Jacques, do you have a favorite Thibodeau hangout that you want to tell me about? <laughs> you know, anytime I'm with you, Simone and Thibodeau, that's a good time. So wherever you want to <laughs> take <answer>. me, <laughs> I am happy to go. Um, but yeah, well, you know, thank you so much, Ryan, for being on. And we have a second segment coming up with Tristan Barrick, who did the two-part series on Bayou Lafouche that quoted Ryan and Simone and others. So definitely stick around for the next segment and, and hear more from Tristan. But any last words, Simone or Ryan? No, no. Thank you, Ryan. Loved having you on. Uh, I, guys, I, I, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. You guys are, are always easy to chat with. I enjoy the show. And and you guys are very fortunate to have Tristan up on deck. Uh, he did a phenomenal job in, in putting those two articles together. Uh, you know, from a from a marketing standpoint, we we often put out you know p- small pieces of information, and what he was able to do is kind of pie together all all the different aspects of the Bayou in terms of the, the historical challenges that were that, that were created, along with what's being done today, and then it leads into the the revitalization through the economic and recreational opportunities. So Tristan did a phenomenal job. We had a Balafush Freshwater District Commissioners meeting last night. Those guys were, were very impressed and had nothing but great things to say. So, you know, Tristan did a phenomenal job and we are extremely grateful to him for, for covering our story. Well, great. Well, thank you, Ryan. And you're welcome back anytime. You know, there's a lot going on. So we, we always love to keep in touch with what's going on in Bayou Lafouche. And with that, I will take the Coastal Stat of the Week. Um, this week's coastal stat is that Bayou Lafouche, originally called Chirimachas River or Lafouche de Chitamash, the fork of the Chirimacha, is a 106-mile-long bayou in southeastern Louisiana that flows into the Gulf of Mexico. The bayou is flanked by Louis- Louisiana Highway 1 on the west and Louisiana Highway 308 on the east and is known as the longest main street in the world. It flows through parts of Ascension, Assumption, and Lafouche parishes, Today, approximately 300,000 Louisiana residents drink water drawn from the bayou. And I think that's a very impressive and relevant stat to end on. And with that, stick around. We'll be right back with environmental reporter from the Times-Picayune New Orleans advocate, Tristan Barrick.
And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Samoma Laws with Restore or Retreat. And we are having a two-part uh, show today. You know, had a fascinating conversation with Ryan Perk about um, Friends of Bayou Lafouche and all the work that they're doing to you know, really make the bayou what it once was and could be for the people in that community. And we talked at length about this article, these the series of articles that w- were written recently by Tristan Barrick, environmental reporter with the Times-Picayune New Orleans Advocate. And so we thought, why not have Tristan on to talk about it from his perspective um, and what it was like to report on these stories. So we want to get to that and more. It's been a while since we've had Tristan on the show. So First, we want to catch up a little bit, you know, see how he's doing. So welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Tristan. How are things going for you? Oh, things are things are going great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I think I missed Tristan last time he was on. I think you hogged him all to yourself, Jacques. So nice nice to share you, Tristan. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, I, I Frankly, I remember us being in studio and it's just kind of, you know, a testament to how things have evolved over time. We're all separately recording in the comfort of our own homes or offices, but still good to connect in this way. So, so Tristan, I mean, things must be kind of heating up for you too. I mean, now that, you know, COVID restrictions are kind of slightly loosening and people are getting back to normal, are, is your ability to re- do reporting and get out in the field, has that expanded a lot? Or, and are, what stories have you been following? Yeah, for sure. It's it's really helped a lot. Like, you know, as an environment reporter, it's great to be out in the field, in the environment. And, you know, we kind of, first of all, had to put that on hold as we kind of jumped into the coronavirus coverage and we're helping out with that. And uh, then kind of had to put on hold the sort of, you know, going out in the field because that just wasn't safe. And uh, it's it's good to be out in the field again, you know experiencing what what we're actually covering. So Tristan, do you keep like a list of story ideas? I'd love to know about the the kind of creative or, or journalistic process. Yeah, I I do. And then I just I don't ever check it. Like I, <laughs> I it's kind of where I dump all my little sheets of paper lists and I, I compile it into a main list and then I forget it. And I just it it, it doesn't work very well, but that's kind of my system. Yeah, sounds like us in Delta Dispatch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you wake up in the middle of the night, you have a little notepad next to your bed, and you're like, I have this great idea for a story, and then you can't read it when you wake up. I don't know if that's ever <laughs> happened to you. But... Exactly. I've, I've experienced that. Yep. <laughs> so so tell us, Tristan, I mean, we were talking to Ryan um, a, a bit about the two-part series that you recently reported on. Um and, and he had nothing but wonderful things to say about it. And I, I, you know, in reading it, just found, learned so much and found it so informative. Um, so what really interested you in this story and kind of telling this comprehensive, uh, have, taking this comprehensive look at Bayou Lafouche and the history and kind of what's planned for the future and all the implications involved? Yeah, it, it all kind of started because I had heard that they uh, were doing a dam removal. They were removing the weir and Thibodeau. And that's all I knew. I just heard, wow, they're removing a dam. And um, when I was a reporter in Washington State, I did a lot of coverage of the removal of the Elwha River dams, which was at the time, and I think it still is, like the biggest uh, dam removal project in the U.S. And um, 
you know, I had covered a lot of the aftermath of, of the dam removal and, and kind of how that changed the environment and, uh, you know, did a lot of coverage that, you know, it didn't just change the river itself, but it really changed the estuary, the, the coastal area where the Elwha River meets, uh, meets the, the ocean. And so I, I've always just been very intrigued with dam removal projects, and I know how powerful they can be. So I was actually um, on another assignment near Thibodeau, and I just had some time after that assignment to go run up to Thibodeau and see, see what, what's going on with this dam removal, and was lucky enough to get there right when they were kind of pulling out the first chunks of it and uh, decided I wanted to do just, just a story about the dam removal, just a quick story and started researching it and realized that this is one uh, small part of this huge project, you know, this, this project that, that extends the length of the bayou and has been talked about for decades and, you know, is, is something that uh, people think is, is going to just really profoundly change so many things from recreation to the coastal environment, uh, so up, up and down the bayou. So, you know, once, once I re- realized it was a much bigger project uh, or a much break, bigger story to be told and hadn't been told, really. I mean, we had covered kind of bits and pieces of the project, you know, as, the, as a permit gets granted or a project gets proposed. But we hadn't done like a big comprehensive um, story. So uh, I called up Ben Marlborough, the director of the Freshwater District, and I said, hey, I'm interested in this. And he said, come on up. I'm going to give you a day-long tour of the whole thing. And so that that kind of got us started on it. So I, I teased you when we spoke, Tristan, that, that um, you know, you were going to write a book at the end of it, right? And <laughs> yeah. So I think you told me that you were, you were getting close <laughs> to that. So, so do you write it specifically in two parts? Like, like how did you, again, I'm kind of back to this. I love the creative thought about this, like the before and the after. Like how, when did you realize how big of a story it was and like how you needed to tell it? <laughs> I think my editor realized it needed to be two parts. <laughs> because it, it was just kind of growing and growing and growing. And there were these, you know, elements that I was kind of approaching in chunks, you know, like I want to have a big chunk about, you know, what's going on in Donaldsonville. And I want to have another chunk that's, that's about the recreational element. And, you know, as, as the story started to grow and grow and grow, uh, there was just the thought, you know, we should, we should break this into two parts. It's easier for people to digest if it's, if it's in two sections. So that's, that's kind of how it is. And so I was writing it as one story. And then uh, we decided, you know, we tried to find kind of a halfway point and a good sort of semi cliffhanger was, you know, where uh, they have the realization that, you know, they're, they're trying, they're trying to get this project to happen and it's not happening and it's being stalled and there's a lot of opposition. And then, you know, like with a lot of things in Louisiana, things start going or things change after a hurricane. And so we, we kind of decided that was a good stopping point for the first part. And then we restarted um, after, you know, Hurricane Gustav and the effect it had on, on the bayou. Yeah. And we were talking about it earlier, just, you know, how much we learned. And one of the things that came up that I actually didn't realize was 
the pressure that I guess was put by the economic powers that be in New Orleans on, you know, the region um, in terms of keeping that waterway closed or closing it to kind of make New Orleans more competitive, I guess, as a a port. Um, So there's so much there to learn about that history. What was like kind of one thing that you came across that just really fascinated you or or surprised you in, in reporting the story? Well, that that was one. I mean, that was one that I had a lot of trouble kind of uh, getting getting like a definitive reason why, um, you know, the the lock system that was always promised after they dammed it, why that never happened. And so, um, you know, that took a lot of reading uh, really old um, archival newspaper articles from that time um, and uh, there were a lot of newspapers around back then. I mean, there were, there were a couple newspapers uh, in Donaldsonville, I think. And, um, but one of the challenges was they, they kind of contradicted each other. They had very differing points of views about, you know, why it wasn't happening and what the concerns were. And um, so I think I, I tried to reflect that in the story that it was, it was kind of a complicated thing. And one of the more interesting you know, elements that, that had an effect on it was something that uh, Wendell Cureall had found, which was that uh, folks in New Orleans kind of put a little pressure on to keep it closed because it, it meant they weren't going to have uh, competition, river, river traffic competition from the bayou and everything would just kind of have to flow toward New Orleans. So that seemed to be one element. Um, you know, cost is always an element. Like it, it would have cost a lot of money to, to build that lock system. And then there were, were also just some people who liked it the way it was with, you know, no, no worry about flooding and, and they wanted to keep it that way. So it was, it was kind of complicated. So that's, that's one of the things that um, I thought that you brought great perspective to is, is that, people view the bayou so differently from top to bottom and um maybe maybe they didn't always realize the changes over time right or or you know things like that and so maybe maybe could you tell us a little bit about that perspective Tristan from even from your reporting from Donaldsonville although even talking to somebody like Wendell who's quote down the bayou right how how the bayou changed over time and how they all viewed it differently yeah that was a really interesting thing and and I think that that's part of why restoring the bayou took so long because people in Donaldsonville they they aren't uh, experiencing or using um, the bayou in the way people are down south. And, you know, the bayou was always, for Donaldsonville historically was, uh, you know, Donaldsonville was there because it was, it was like a hub between, you know, the, the river and the bayou. And so it was a real trade hub. But after that closed off, Donaldsonville didn't really have that purpose anymore and, you know, moved on from that and had a different identity for itself. And, that identity really wasn't tied to the bayou anymore. And their end of the bayou kind of filled in and, and, you know, people really didn't uh, interact with the bayou very much. And then you go further down and, um, you know, I think that, that the bayou is, is gets more use uh, day to day, the further you go down uh, for, 
for drinking water and for recreation and for fishing boats, you know, in Golden Meadow and that area to, to get out to the Gulf. And then, um, you know, just what it means for Port Fouchon, you know, so it, yeah, it is, it is a really different bayou depending on where you live, basically. Interesting. You mentioned this in terms of you and your editor deciding a good like halfway point, you know, for the the series and, and mentioning Gustav as really being an impetus to kind of have people rethink what needed to happen um, as it relates to kind of the bayou and then the larger, you know, Terrebonne Basin. Simone and I, and, and, and you know, talking about coastal restoration issues, you think about kind of the Atchafalaya Basin and kind of the sediment source there. You think about kind of maybe, you know, the Pontchartrain Basin and along um, the Barataria Basin and the source there from the river. But one of the things that's, you know, kind of been made apparent is that Terrebonne doesn't really have that same sediment source. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the plans to bring freshwater and sediment back into the Terrebonne Basin? And, and I think you quoted someone from the Army Corps of Engineers that said it would have like a massive uh, influence over the area in terms of kind of helping to maintain the wetlands that are there. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, and that was another thing that, you know, when I started looking at this project in total, it, it hadn't really been explored that much. You know, it, it had mostly been explored as something that's good for drinking water supplies. And, you know, we need to do this project to, to kind of preserve that sort of thing. And, it hadn't really been that explored, you know, out in the public, just what this is all going to mean for the coast and the coastal marshes. And, and like I say, like, you know, I knew from seeing what, what happened with the Elwha River, um, you know, the, the most profound and exciting changes uh, with that project were actually, were actually happening, you know, in the estuary. That's where there was just a rebirth of, of life and everything was changing and growing. And so I wanted to kind of see, you know, if that was if that was true with this, and you know, in large part it it is, you know, and and it it goes back to those um, old studies by the Army Corps and you know, the CPRA's assessment of of what it'll do, and it's still not totally clear, you know, how wide of an area this is going to benefit. But, you know, it could be up to like 85,000 acres, I think, according to the Army Corps. And uh, just that that is going to be uh, really, really something that's been missing from the marshes there, that the marshes haven't had that freshwater flow. And um, to have these, these saltwater marshes function properly, you need these uh, freshwater inputs. Um for one thing, one one person uh, with Bitnap mentioned, you know, just that it flushes it out. You know, it it if you don't have these flows going through, then everything kind of stagnates, and that stagnation leads to an unhealthy marsh, and an unhealthy marsh is more likely to uh, erode more quickly. It's it's not going to hold up to storms as well. So it'll be really interesting to see as this fresh water starts flowing down there, you know, how, how it changes the environment. I, I don't think it's going to be like the, uh, the mid barataria sediment version because it's not on that scale and it's not going to have those big sediment loads. It's mostly going to be fresh water that, that goes down. But, um, 
you know, one thing that was really interesting is like the CPRA is investing so much money in that area for in restoration projects and barrier island rebuilds. And this is only going to benefit those things. You know, all that money and investment that we put as a state into that area is is gonna gonna feel some some benefits from this this other project on the bayou. Yeah, Tristan, you make a couple of great points there that um, that this is kind of the, um, I mean, multiple lines of defense isn't the right way to say it, but but very complementary, a whole suite of projects um, that you need from soup to nuts to make sure that you're not just doing barrier islands. And I remember working on this project way back when I started at Restore Retreat so long ago. And the idea was just reconnecting it in any small way and getting fresh water to more places um, would be better than nothing, right? And and that that almost totally discounts the freshwater drinking aspect of the bayou, which is huge and has come to light over recent years about how the security of a freshwater drinking supply is so important. And so my husband, we were talking about the the quote I had in the article about it being a Rubik's cube, and and it's just that it's so complex and that there's so many aspects of it that's about a restoration project and so many aspects of it that that pivot to something totally different in drinking water. And so I thought you did a great job covering that in the article. One of the ways that you did that is you spoke to so many people, including folks like Wendell, including folks like Andrew from from Bitnamp. So what what are did you see I guess you saw those differences when you talked to all those different people, kind of their point of view that they were coming from, right? Do you see that in every article or or is just just a, a testament to how complex this issue is. No, you, you don't see that as much, I, I think, in, in every article. I think that, you know, a lot of these um, restoration projects in Louisiana, they they are oriented toward, uh, you know, environmental restoration. And, and Louisiana's coast is, is such that there's just not a lot of people living on it and interacting on a personal level with it, you know, for the, for the large part of the population. And this was different because this restoration project literally flows through people's backyards. And, uh, you know, everybody in that area is going to see the changes and, and hopefully benefit from it. And, and hopefully, you know, as what I, I thought one of the most exciting things about the project was, um, that that it has like a outdoor recreation element to it that you know these these improvements are going to be something that anybody can um access in a recreational way if it's you know whether it's just like throwing a line out and fishing in the bayou or as simple as having like a little canoe or kayak you know they don't have to have like a a seagoing fishing boat or anything like that to 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 experience this and and uh recreate in it. So I thought that was a really cool element of it too. Yeah. And Ryan definitely hit on that in his earlier segment, you know, talking about the benefits in terms of accessibility and tourism, but even like quality of life and people 
kind of over time now people are returning to the bayou and wanting to build their homes, you know, so that it's accessible in that way. Um, I wasn't going to bring it up, but since Simone mentioned her quote and the Rubik's Cube, I have to say one of the things that I also really enjoyed about these series was the very colorful quotes that were included throughout. I have to ask Tristan and, and your experience, I mean, I imagine the people of the Bayou region provide some of the most colorful quotes of anyone <laughs> that you've, uh, you know, interviewed. Is that is that a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, I mean, like Wendell Kirall, uh, you always know he's going to have a colorful quote. I mean, I just call him up, and I don't really even ask him questions. I say I'm doing a story about, and then he just starts talking, and uh, I just take notes basically and, and try to get a question in every once in a while, and uh, but it it also it helps to um, be with people in uh, in real life. You know, like over the phone, people are a little more hesitant and it's a more formal thing. Um, but when you're with, spending time like with Ben, uh, the whole day driving up and down the bayou, you know, he really opens up. He's talking to a person, not somebody on the phone. And um, and I think it helps to... to you know, approach a story like this as a project where, you know, I let my editors know, hey, this is this is something we're going to work on for a while. And I'm going to take a long trip and I'm going to take a uh, talk to a lot of people about this. And so that gives more time to have long conversations with people. And that just uh, increases your chances of, of good quotes, I guess, or, you know, really pithy things that I think I talked to Simone for like an hour and I, I think I, I quoted her once or something like that. And it was that great Rubik's cube quote that really just kind of um, really, I thought summarized exactly what this project is like. So I just thought about all the hours poor Tristan logged. <laughs> if he talked to me for an hour, that meant he talked to Wendell for six he spent oh, the yeah. whole day with Ben, probably then some. So, um, but yeah, just no, uh, it, it was a pleasure. It, it really was a pleasure. And it's such a, it's such a beautiful place. You know, the Bayou is such a beautiful place. And I, I mostly covered the coast and was not familiar with Thibodeau and, you know, the upper part of the Bayou. And I, I kind of fell in love with it and really wanted to tell the story well and tell elements of the story that really hadn't been told very much. So it, it was all very, it was a pleasure to do the whole story. Yeah. When we, when we first started, when I first started talking about this project, cause it was, it was there long before I was, but that idea of how many people literally touched the bayou all along the way, that was just so different. You, you made that point earlier that like, this has got to be this huge outreach campaign um, to try to get people to understand why we need this bayou to look different and work differently. Um, and, and they maybe appreciated it for something else. So it was, it was a great um, study and kind of how to interact with people. And, and frankly, people like Ben at the Bayou Lafouche Freshwater District stepped up in a huge way and and made that a priority about getting out there and talking to people and being accessible. And it was definitely not easy in some of those early days. And so um, much, much credit to them for that. But, but in a restoration standpoint, it was, it was interesting. It was this 
totally different model um, where we really didn't have to worry about birds and wildlife, that we had to worry about people, right, that had invested significant amount of money um, to, to, you know, have their backyard back up to the bayous. So um, an interesting point that you make there. What, what other stories are you working on? What you looking at in the months ahead? What's on that little piece of paper? I'd love to know. <laughs> Uh, well, lately I'm, I'm doing a lot of project work that's kind of like longer term that's kind of keeping me busy for the, for the whole summer, just on energy and hurricane preparedness and um, that sort of thing. Like I'm kind of, kind of chipping away at three big projects and doing, doing less of this sort of like daily stuff, but um, one shorter term story that I'm working on is is about uh, the uh, Pasalute uh, Wildlife Management Area right at the, the mouth of the Mississippi. I went down there with a, a scientist who's who studied it for for years and was actually also uh, he used to work for wildlife and fisheries as a enforcement officer early in his career in that area. So he really kind of had um, a really uh, great understanding of the place, but. The story is that it's it's turning a hundred uh, this year, and uh, apparently it was the first uh, wildlife management area um, in the state, and uh, it's it's disappearing fast. You know, it's it's uh, there's not much hope that it'll be around for another hundred years. So, um, you know, see it while you can, sort of a thing. Yeah, and that's, I mean, certainly a very beautiful area of the coast. And so very much looking forward to that piece, uh, Tristan, when it comes out. What else has been going on at the Times Picayune New Orleans Advocate? I know you all have a new newsletter, the Catch Basin. Tell us about that and where people can go to sign up and and make sure they're staying on top of the latest reporting that you and Mark and and Hallie and everyone over there is doing. Yeah, that. That doing a newsletter on environmental stuff had been something we had talked about for years and never did. And then Hallie joined us and said, hey, how come you guys don't have a newsletter? And we we're like, you know, we would, but we just don't know what to do. And Hallie was like, well, I do. And um, she really she really took ownership of it and has really uh, made it great. I think we have like a whole lot of subscribers to it. And she makes sure we we put it out every week, and and she she mostly does the work. You know, we just contribute here and there, and it's been a, a another good way to kind of reach people. Well, I highly recommend folks go and um, subscribe, and it is such an informative newsletter. It covers a number of topics, and I love that it's just it's put out there. So great job to Hallie and the whole team. And then they can just go if they go to nola.com, they can sign up for it, or where should they go? Um, well, it's you, we have an embedded sign up in every one of our um, environmental stories. So if you go to any of our stories about the environment, you'll see a little uh, sign up box kind of embedded in the text where you can sign up. And it's super easy. You just drop in your email and hit send. And I think that pretty much pretty much subscribes you to it. Awesome. Well, highly recommend people do that. And I have to say, that, you know, I was in reading the story about in the series about Bayou Lafouche, I was kind of taken to another place where I was reading a series about a larger body of water and kind of your chronicling all of the uh, issues that related to that water. And of course, I'm talking about the Mississippi River in a series you did, I think a few years ago um, about, you know, issues about the river and sedimentation and flooding kind of like from 
Minnesota, I guess, all the way down to Louisiana. So you really have a knack for like chronicling these large flowing bodies of water, these rivers and bringing the life, you know, the human and historical and, um, you know, ecological angles to the story. So I don't know if that's kind of your beat that you're trying to, you know, really take on the rivers and, and bayous and streams, but um, highly recommend if folks haven't checked out Tristan's series on the Mississippi River from a few years back, they do that as well. Yeah, thanks. Because I won't let this go, um, Tristan, um, like if you have any aspiring environmental reporters or even reporters that are thinking about what they want to get into, do you have any words of wisdom for them or, or even your own experience that you could share about them getting started in that space? Yeah, I think one thing that's helped me a lot as, as an environment reporter is having gained experience not covering the environment. Um, so early on when I started out, I covered general assignments. So I was covering you know everything from police and city politics to schools, uh, art features every once in a while, that sort of stuff. And later got more into political coverage, covering legislature and, and city government. And all of those things have benefited me as an environment reporter. You know, and I, I'm glad that, you know, I didn't specialize early on so I could kind of get a, a, a sort of a shallow understanding of a lot of different things. And I pull those into my environment reporting like all the time. So I guess that would be my advice. Like if you're starting out and you want to do environmental coverage, I would say start out doing a variety of things and then kind of focus and specialize as, as you get more experience. I love that. Like learn how to chop an onion before you cook French cuisine, right? You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I love that perspective. That's interesting. I, I don't think I would have expected that, but that is be good at be good uh, be a good reporter first, right? And then and then you can specialize. So that's great. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So Tristan, um wanna make sure we let folks know where they can go to follow you on Twitter to to be sure to get uh, future reporting that comes out from you. Yeah, um, NOLA.com is where all of our stories are. We've got like a environment tab where, you know, you can see all the stories from Mark Schlefstein and me and Hallie. And um, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at TristanBowrick.com, I think it is, Tristan Bowrick. And, uh, <laughs> that wasn't a test. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's a .com at the end, but anyways, Tristan Bowrick, my full name. And then uh, sign up for the newsletter. That's also a really good way to do it. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, for being on. Of course, we can't let you go without a fun question, which I'll get to in a second. But I also have to say, I've loved some of the graphic uh, reporting that you all have been doing to accompany um, some of the environmental reporting, some of the graphic works that you all did for, I think it was Midbaritaria and some other pieces uh, that you've reported on recently had really impressive graphics. So great to see that as well. Yeah, a credit to Dan Swenson, who is our graphic artist, and he is amazing. And one thing I love about Dan is he really loves doing um, graphics that kind of get into the, that kind of break down the complexity of environmental issues in particular. So he is an awesome resource, and I love working with him, and he's great. Well, great job. So um, time for the fun question. I think we're just going to make these questions that make me miss home and feel jealous, but hopefully 
projecting <laughs> Tristan. Watch out. <laughs> Hopefully they'll just, you know, I mean, I'll come, uh, I'll come home more often. So, um, from what I hear, you know, New Orleans is gearing up for a very active few months, festival season, people get people getting back out. We've got rescheduled festivals. So um, I know there's a lot on the books, Tristan, and probably a lot, you know, a lot of folks have missed out on in the last year and year and a half. So which festival are you most looking forward to in the six months ahead? Oh, it's it's going to be Mardi Gras. I mean, that's, that's always the big one. And, you know, having had the last Mardi Gras basically canceled. That's one I'm really looking forward to. And I've, I've joined a crew and, and looking to get, get more involved in that. So yeah, definitely, definitely Mardi Gras is a big one. That's awesome. Can, do you mind sharing? Can we ask what crew you joined? Oh, I hope it's the lazy boys. <laughs> the, the lazy boys they're the guys that go in the recliners the oh. motorized recliners amazing yeah this- that's that's a good one i maybe i'll try to join that one as well i'm in i'm in the crew of red beans oh, oh that's awesome. awesome good for you yeah and it's so fun we we did um we did the mardi gras before everything was canceled so we did our big bean costumes and everything like that and it's a lot of work. And uh, so now that I get the sense that Mardi Gras is really going to happen, I, I kind of got to get to work on, on my costume. Yeah, don't be late on that, Tristan. Yeah. I was gonna say, I hope you stocked up on hot glue sticks because oh, you're yeah. gonna need a lot of it. Yeah. What if there's yep. a shortage? What do we- oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> there will be a sequin shortage before next Mardi Gras. Watch, <laughs> it's gonna happen. I called it here on Delta Dispatches. <laughs> well, Tristan, <laughs> we look forward, yes, to to that, and and yeah, you'll have to send us pictures of your costume once it's all in place, and we'd love to have you and anyone from Times Picayune New Orleans Advocate on in the future talk about your. And in the meantime, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're you're super busy and covering a lot of stories, um, but really appreciate your uh, perspective and time today on this great series on Bayou Lafouche. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right, Simone, well, why don't you end us with the Coastal Voice of the Week? Yes, I'm very happy to do that. Um, we're hearing from Shannon in Cutoff. Um, Tristan said it. I I always because I grew up there say down the bayou, and you said you said travel south or something. I was like, oh, that's how you really are supposed to say it. Um, so Shannon, um, down south in Lafouche, um, tells us that she supports the coast because the culture and people here are like no other. Living off the land is where those deep roots started. It saddens me to see the land that has gone just since my childhood. Thank you, Shannon, for telling us why you support the coast and lending us your coastal voice. Just a reminder, you can add yours at MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. We have a couple more things coming up this week. I know uh, Tristan was covering it. It's the continuation of Louisiana Wind Week, and we're looking forward to having some of those leaders on our show in the future. Let you close it out, though, Jacques. Yeah, another great episode. I'm so grateful that we were able to feature people in your neck of the woods, Simone. You know, you all say down the bayou. Where I'm from, from we say down the road. But I think, you know, potato, potato, it's all the same. <laughs> so, again, uh, please go check out the Friends of Bayou Lafouche um, and their website, bayoulafouche.org, as well as um, the, this great series from Tristan Bark at the Times Picky New Orleans Advocate. And we're excited discuss wind next week when we're back on Delta Dispatches. But until then, we'll see y'all later, alligators. Mm-hmm.